You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. It's now open to our scripture reading this morning from the New Testament, Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing us by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This morning we continue with our series of sermons on the Psalms. This morning we turn to Psalm 15. Let's now read that together. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things 
will never be shaken. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus, I don't know how many of us were there last week at GM Place when the Canucks played the Leafs, but I imagine knowing that some of you are hockey fans, it's possible that, that some of us were there. And if you were there, there was only one way to get in the door. You had to have a ticket. And this happens more often in life. Various kinds of clubs have, have memberships. Without a membership, you're not allowed in. Happens in the church, too. Think of last Sunday when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Of course, anyone is welcome to enter our building. Anyone can come in here and sit in the pew and watch what's going on and participate at a certain level. Of course, this is a public worship service. It's a public event. But if you're going to take part in the Lord's Supper, normally you have to be a member. Now, we could add all kinds of other examples, but I think we all recognize that there are conditions attached to gaining entry to all kinds of things in this life, to both the sacred and the mundane. Considering that, then we shouldn't really be surprised by the question that's posed in the first verse of our text this morning. David asked the Lord the question, Who can dwell in your sanctuary? Who can live on your holy hill? What he's really asking is, who can come and live near to God? What kind of conditions are attached to gaining access to God's presence? And so the theme for the sermon this morning is that simple question, who can come and live in the presence of a holy God? And in the sermon, we're going to look at dissecting the question, discovering the answer, and then finally, depending on the promise. So dissecting the question, I guess that sounds medical or scientific. Maybe it brings back memories of biology class or something like that. I apologize for that. I needed a word that begins with D. At any rate, what we want to do right now is try and understand where David's question in verse 1 is coming from. The psalm has a title. It tells us that David wrote it. And we have no reason to question that. And that brings us to the historical context. The question being asked speaks of God's sanctuary, of God's holy hill. And perhaps we right away think there of Mount Zion. But remember that the temple wasn't built while David was king. The temple wasn't built until the time of Solomon. During David's reign, there was for a time this strange situation where there were actually two centers of worship in Israel. On the one hand, there was Gibeon, where the tabernacle was located, and the, and the ark for some time. On the other hand, eventually David brought the ark to Jerusalem, and Mount Zion became another center of worship. Mount Zion was where the temple would eventually be built. And so on the, on the one hand, we have Gibeon, and, and the word Gibeon in Hebrew means hill, by the way. But on the other hand, Psalm 2 verse 5 clearly calls Mount Zion God's holy hill. So all this means that we're left with some ambiguity about what is actually being referred to in verse 1. Whether it's Gibeon or Mount Zion, we can't really say for sure. Nevertheless, we can say with certainty that 
When the first people read this psalm, the first Jewish readers came to it, they would have understood this as referring to the dwelling place of God in the place of worship. Wherever that might be, it doesn't matter. They would have understood that as referring to the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the innermost place where the ark would have been located. So the question is, who can dwell in God's sanctuary? Who can be close to Him? Who can live with Him in His presence? If we literally translate the first part of verse 1, it says, Yahweh, who can sojourn in your tent? Now, sojourning is a bit different than dwelling. Sojourning means staying around temporarily. And then in the next line of verse 1, who may live on your holy hill, that has in view a more permanent kind of staying around, setting down roots. Now these questions have to be seen against the background of Old Testament worship. Specifically, what happened with the high priest? That's why we read from Hebrews chapter 9. lays it out very clearly. Once per year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle or the temple. This happened on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest, he couldn't do this casually, as if he was just going to go visit his buddy or something. There was a lot of preparation involved. After all, he was coming into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. So when he came in, he could not come unprepared. He had to come with blood. He had to come with prayers. And when he did come into the Holy of Holies, go behind that curtain, he had to do his work quickly and then leave. He couldn't stay around for even a short time. Why not? Well, I think we find the answer in Psalm 5, verse 4, we're told that evil cannot sojourn, cannot dwell even temporarily with a holy God. This shows us that the question in verse 1 is a rhetorical question. Now, a rhetorical question is a question for which the answer is obvious. And here, the answer, for anybody who knows their Bible knows it well, the answer is that no one can sojourn with God, be close to Him in His presence. No mere sinful human being can come into God's presence to stay, even for a short time. Much less can someone live with God in any kind of permanent way. And when we look at that question of of Psalm 15 with Old Testament eyes, We're left with an emptiness, a realization that something more is needed if we're going to have a meaningful relationship with this God, if we're going to be able to live with Him. We're left with a desire that somehow there would be a way out of this. And there is. And we'll see that as we come to our next point and look at the answer that's offered in this psalm. And the answer seems to reinforce the rhetorical question in verse 1. It does this by a, a number of conditions or qualities of the person who can, who can live in the presence of the Holy One. Now, depending on how you count them, there are different ways to do that. There are either 10 of them or there are 12. Let's briefly review what they are. Verse 2. 
begins with two general things and one thing that's pretty specific. But these things appear to be the most difficult, the most challenging. David tells us that this person's walk is blameless. Now, blameless, or you could also translate that as perfect, that word recalls our original state at creation. When Adam and Eve were created, they were whole. They, they fit the purpose for which they were created. They were, they were living for God's glory consistently, 24-7. It's the same with the person who can sojourn in the Lord's sanctuary, who can live on God's holy hill. Such a person also does what is righteous. This means that this person is consistently loyal to his obligations. Whether those obligations are to God or to his fellow man, to his neighbor, this person can always be counted on to do the right thing. And verse 2 adds that he speaks truth from his heart. So it's not just a matter of the externals, the external actions. There's also a, a certain inner attitude. He speaks truth in his heart. He speaks truth from his heart. The lie, which we associate, of course, with the father of lies, the devil, the lie has no place in his heart, has no place in his life. So brothers and sisters, are you starting to sense the impossibly high standards that are laid out here? And those high standards continue through the other verses. Verse 3 tells us that this person takes no slander upon his tongue. No gossip. In other words, secretly speaking against other people, that just doesn't happen in his life. He does no evil to his neighbor, never speaks against his neighbor. Verse 4 tells us that such a person despises those who are vile. Now, those who are vile are those who show outright contempt. They show disrespect towards God. They're the kind of people who would love nothing more than to be able to spit God in his face directly. Well, this person who would dwell with God finds it difficult to be around such people. Instead, he prefers to be around those who fear Yahweh, those who, who respect God and those who hold God in honor. These are the ones that he will honor, that this man will honor, the ones he will find worthy of respect, the ones that he loves to have in his company, the ones he likes to have near him. Verse 4 adds that this person is honest and truthful with his oaths. He makes an oath and he keeps it. This is the man who can truly say with a straight face, Look you straight in the eye and say, promises made, promises kept. And then in verse 5, we read that this person lends his money without usury. Now, usury is not a word that we use very much anymore today. That's a, a reference to the Old Testament laws which forbid Israelites from charging interest to one another on loans. Not just exorbitant interest, but any interest. God's people were not allowed to take interest from one another. Though they were allowed to do that with foreigners. Finally, verse 5 tells us that this man does not accept a bribe against the innocent. In other words, he can't be moved to hurt somebody else for the sake of financial gain. Now we may, may look at some of these last items and we may think, well, that, that's, that's fairly simple actually. We could probably do that. But in an Old Testament context, 
these things would have gone against the grain, against uh, their culture and society, things that were happening and people thought they were normal. The evidence says that that Israelites, for instance, they made all kinds of rationalizations to charge one another interest. And when it came to swearing oaths, you remember the words of the Lord Jesus about that? Matthew 23. The Jews, if they, they swore an oath by the temple, they could get away with breaking it. But if they swore an oath by the gold of the temple, well, then they were obliged to, to, to do what they had sworn. Well, Psalm 15 sings a different tune. The man who would dwell with God, even temporarily, has to be a consistent oath keeper. And in case we've forgotten, the second verse lays out an impossibly high ideal to begin with. Even if you've got all those external things down pat, verse 2 is still standing there and pointing its finger at you. And all all of this leads us to the obvious answer that no one can dwell with God. No one can live on God's holy hill. To live with God in this way, we need wholeness. We need holiness. And no mere human being has this. Because we're all broken. We're all unholy. And in this way, this psalm points us to look outside of ourselves. If we're to find an answer to what seems at first glance to be a rhetorical question, that answer can't be found in our own hearts. That answer can't be found in our lives and in the things that we do. Instead, we have to look to God. We have to look to the answer that He has given. And He has given an answer. It's in the second Adam. His answer is in Christ. This psalm points us to Jesus Christ as the answer to the question of verse 1. Because who else other than Christ? Who else is the one whose walk is blameless? Who else besides Christ has consistently done what is righteous? Besides Christ, who else has spoken the truth in and, and from his heart? Well, he is the truth. His life mirrored God's law perfectly in every respect. From slander to oath-keeping to justice, in every way, Christ is the one. And we saw from our reading of Hebrews 9 that it is Christ who has earned the right to enter the sanctuary. He has earned the right to enter into the most holy place, to the holy of holies. Our Lord Jesus entered Not with the blood of bulls and goats and rams. He entered by His own blood. And then He didn't just stay for a while, have a little visit. Now the Bible makes it clear that He sat down. He could stay in the sanctuary forever. His work was finished. He can live on God's holy hill permanently. And so when we see Christ in this psalm, then we no longer see a rhetorical question, a question for which the answer is obvious in in verse 1. When we see the Lord Jesus and we see His life reflected in these lines, we're no longer left with a sense of emptiness because there is one who fits this description perfectly. Now, if we just left it at that, it wouldn't be of much help. 
But the good news is that by faith, we are tied to this Savior. And not merely tied, but unified in the deepest possible way. We have spiritual union with Him. We are in Christ. And that has two consequences for our lives as believers. The first consequence is that because we have union with Christ, because we are in Him, we too can live with God. When we read this psalm with Old Testament eyes, we see a wall, we see a barrier between us and God. When we read this psalm with our eyes on Christ and our union with Him, there's no longer a wall there, there's a doorway, a gateway. Through Christ, we enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father. We experience God's presence in our lives, not just temporarily, for a little while, but eternally. And more wonderfully, He also makes His dwelling with us through His Holy Spirit. In principle, there is no more distance between God and us. We are in the closest, the most intimate relationship imaginable. Now the second consequence is that our union with Christ leads us to see verses 2 to 5 as a guide to who we should be. If this is what Christ is like, and we have union with Him in the deepest way, then shouldn't our lives be looking the same way? These verses show us the way of thankful living. These verses show us the way of covenant obedience, showing our love to God for the salvation that He's given us. The Lord Jesus is the perfect priest who has entered into the Holy of Holies. We are in Him. Now think about that for a minute. We are in Him. He is in the Holy of Holies. So that means that we too have entered in, at least in principle. And for us, that means that our lives have to reflect who we are in principle. The principle has to be put into practice here on the ground in the day-to-day of our lives. We have to be who we are. Doing righteousness, for example. Think about that. Are we the kind of people that others depend on? Others say, you know, that guy, I can trust him. I give him a job to do and I know that he's going to do his best. I know he's going to do it well. Or that woman, when I tell her something, I know that I can trust her with that information and she's never going to use it against me. What about the point of despising vile men? For us, we we could ask, are, are we comfortable with people who show contempt for God? Are we comfortable being around people who, who disrespect the Lord? And verses 2 to 5 lead us to ask more such questions. But I think you can grasp the, the general direction in which we need to be thinking. You can work with this yourself. God has set high standards in His Word. Christ has met those high standards. We are in Christ. 
we will be striving to live according to those standards too. In this way, through Christ and His work in us, we will be living in God's presence now and eternally. Let's hear more about that in, in the promise at the end of this psalm. That's our last point, depending on the promise. Last lines of verse 5 contain the simple promise. He who does these things will never be shaken. To be shaken means that you're wobbling under God's judgment. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's the wicked who are shaken, the wicked who are dispossessed. They experience God's justice. Meanwhile, it's the righteous who stand fast and are firmly established. They have the house, so to speak, built on the rock. And so when David says he who does these things will never be shaken, he's really saying that such a man will not face eternal judgment. He will not face eternal condemnation. And why not? Well, again, go back to verse 1. We're talking about one who can live with a holy God. We're talking about the God whom Scripture describes as a consuming fire. The God whom Scripture tells us that no one can see and live. This is the God before whom Isaiah fell trembling in that well-known chapter of Isaiah 6. And he said, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King! The Lord Almighty. But now this man in Psalm 15, he dwells with such a God. If we reflect on that, then the promise of verse 5 makes sense. For if God would allow such a person to dwell in His presence, who would there be to harm Him? If the Almighty Judge, the ruler of the universe, accepts you, who's left to condemn you? You see that promise? The promise is for acceptance. Makes you think of Ephesians 1 verse 6 where we read that we are accepted in the Beloved. I love that passage. It's so beautiful. We are accepted in the Beloved that is in Christ. And for this reason, we are dwelling with God. For this reason, we have been adopted into His family. For this reason, we will never be shaken, never wobble under His judgment because of who we are in Christ. In fact, because of the promise, we can look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 15. It's in Revelation 21, verse 3. It's a passage that's probably familiar to you. But I think that old cliche about familiarity and contempt, I don't think that's going to apply here. Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Beautiful. We have this rich promise. Now what are we supposed to do with it? Well, brothers and sisters, we have to hold on to it. We have to depend on it. Things sometimes happen in our lives where we feel like we're being blown over. We feel like we're wobbling. Look to the promise. With faith in the righteous one, you will not be shaken. 
That's not to say that it won't be difficult. That's not to say that you won't have doubts and, and questions and struggles. But when you go through that, the rock of our salvation will be the one to help. Sometimes these truths are the only certain things that we have in this life. Depend on Him. Trust His promise for you in Jesus Christ. He will be your God. He will be near to you. You will not be shaken. And so now, we're about to open up our books of praise and and sing this psalm. And as we do so, remember who we're singing about. This is Christ's song. The words only have meaning for us as believers when we think about Him. We think about His attributes. We think about all the wonderful things that He has done. We think about Christ while we're singing. We sing in union with Him. We sing recognizing His work in us. Praying also while we're singing for His work in us. Because it's all about Christ and who we are in Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.